I made it about a quarter of the way through the first book of the Bible, um, but we will speed up, and some of the books will be taking more than one per week. But I think uh, our understanding of this foundational book, this introductory book, is important to our understanding of the Bible, and that's why we're taking three weeks to, to look through it. So let me pray, and, um, and then we'll begin. Father, we're thankful that uh, through Jesus' blood, you have brought many sons to glory. Thankful that we can be counted among that number. Um, we don't deserve anything but your wrath, and yet you have been so merciful to us in providing for us salvation uh, freely, um, not based on any works that we have done, but according to your mercy that you saved us. Remind us of that truth again this morning as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're starting in chapter 12, and before we get into this, let me just um, show you some of those dates there that you have on your handout. And if you can remember these five dates, these four dates, then um, you will help yourself as you're going through the Old Testament. If you can just remember some of these characters and these um, kind of rounded numbers. So 2000 B.C. is about the time of uh, Abraham and Job, most likely was during this time, and then 1500 is the Exodus with Moses, and then 1,000 was David, and, of course, zero is Jesus. So um, that kind of, if you have those pegs upon which to hang the rest of, of your thinking in the Old Testament on, then you can kind of know where you're at. So if you, if you know you're talking about Joseph, well, you know Joseph is a, a great-grandson of Abraham, and so he's probably somewhere in here a couple hundred years, maybe a hundred years after Abraham. And, um, and then, obviously, you can kind of think through the storyline as how it, how it progresses. Uh, what I don't have in here, I missed, I think it's on your handout, is Nehemiah in 500 B.C. as well. So, um, uh, just a helpful way that helps me. I don't have to look up dates or have dates written in the side of my margins. If I can just think of those five dates, 2015, 1,500, and zero, then um, it kind of give me an idea of where, where I'm at. All right. Um, let's think about the overall biblical context. Again, we've already looked at this again, but I, I want to just add into here the idea of dispensations that in Genesis 1 and 2 we had the dispensation of innocence, which is that, that Adam and Eve had a responsibility to obey and to remain in holiness and, um, and to fulfill God's dominion mandate. Uh, they failed when they sinned. So each of these finishes with a judgment and a sign of mercy. And we'll talk about this um, the idea of dispensations when we get to um, the spring of 2018. We're going to have a whole class on that, about 12-week study on, uh, through this. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but Genesis 3 through 8 is the uh, dispensation or the age of conscience. Um, God had revealed that he would bring this promised seed that we talked about last week. And their responsibility was to respond to the internal rule of God. And, of course, they failed in the, the chief Failure is seen in God bringing the flood and then obviously showing mercy despite the judgment there that was coming. And then in Genesis 9 through 11, we have civil government um, where animals were, uh, were made by God to fear man, that man had the ability now to eat uh, of animals. Capital punishment was instituted. Um, no more would there be a flood. So that's the new revelation that was coming. Man's responsibility was to rule for God and to promote righteousness, to believe the covenant. And they failed when they made the Tower of Babel. God, again, brought down judgment by 
in this case, um, sending them across the earth, um, confusing their languages. And um, so yet in that, he still showed mercy by not destroying them completely. And then in Genesis 12 through Exodus 18, we have the dispensational promise where there's a promise of a seed, land, and blessing, which we'll talk about today. And their responsibility was to believe the covenant and, um, and stay separated from the nations. The end of that section is where Israel um, blasphemes against God. They make idols uh, and worship the, wor- they worship a specific idol, the golden calf, and, uh, and then uh, God responds. All right. So today we're looking at Genesis 12 through 50. Next week we'll look at Exodus 1 through 18. And we can summarize this by that really long theme there that I have for you, but here's a shorter one that, that I used when, I, um, when we studied through the book of Genesis. And you don't necessarily have to write this down, but it's God's plan to glorify Himself through His creation continues on despite sin and evil that seem to damage His way. So God has this overall overarching plan to accomplish His purposes throughout the, the history of His people. In fact, He creates a people. It's kind of a story of beginnings. That's what Genesis means, beginnings. And so you have the beginning of the human race. You have the beginning of um, Abraham, the God's people. And, and throughout that, despite sin, God still is merciful. And we'll see that. I'm going to finish with a video today and, and I think that will point some of those, those things out. All right. So let's start in chapter 12 and see how these doctrines are presented to us. Chapter 12. First, God's place. Story of Abraham, who was originally named Abram. I'll refer to him as Abraham exclusively, over, even though his name hasn't been changed yet. Um, verse 12, or, or verse 1, excuse me, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So these are important verses because these really start the the um, the, the dispensation of promise. It's an it's an initial huge down payment of a promise that God's giving to Abraham, saying, "Listen, what I'm going to do for you is great." And and um, and so this it helps to build a foundation for the rest of the Bible because what we're going to find in this promise is that God never um, revokes this promise. No matter how evil His people are, He doesn't say, well, you know what? Now I'm not going to bless those who bless you. Now I'm not going to make you a special nation. Now I'm not going to give you a land. No. Despite their evil over and over again, um, God continues to remain faithful to this promise and, and as we see Him do with every promise. But there are others... Uh, promises that that um, that are bilateral promises that, in other words, that one person could break their end of the covenant and the and the covenant's broken. Um, and and this one is a promise that God makes, uh, and despite His people, He will He will accomplish it. Now there are some stipulations that He gives to them and expectations that He has for them. The first promise that that um, we want to consider is the promise of the land. So at the end of verse 1, he says, I'm going to take you to the land which I will show you. And this becomes more explicit in verses 6 and 7. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. So he kind of gets a, 
a tour of the new land that is going to be his. Verse 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord uh, who had appeared to him. Notice the end of verse 6, Now the Canaanite was in the land. So at this point, um, God's creation, God's people are removed from his special um, Garden of Eden that he created that was the, um, a symbol of perfect um, fellowship that man had with God. And God said, now I'm going to take you to another land and it's going to be great. It's going to be prosperous and uh, I'm going to bless you there. But, but as of now, the Canaanites live there. And so God's working to get them to a place where they would receive this inheritance. But what we know is that Abraham's not going to be the one to receive this promise. Um, Hebrews 11:8 through 10 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was re- to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. So God didn't take him there and say, Okay, here you go, it's all yours. Uh, he said, You can live here, but you're, you're an alien. And then it goes on to say that he was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews chapter 11. So for them, they, they lived in tents like pilgrims because they knew that this uh, land, even though this was the land that God had promised, was really just a, a, a symbol or a, a smaller view of the greater land that they all would receive, which is, Heaven. That's what Hebrews seems to be saying, that there's a better place that has its, its foundation and architect as God. And so the, the nation of Israel was not, never meant to be the end point uh, completely. Um, and, um, and so in a similar way, although we are not Israel, we are the church. If we are believers in Christ, the world is not our home. We, like Abraham, are pilgrims in a land that does not belong to us. We don't live here permanently. This is temporary. Uh, although God will restore this land and to bring it to a place where uh, He can live among us, this is not our our um, our ultimate home, at least as it is right now. All right. So first, land. Second, uh, a nation. God's going to make a special people. Notice in chapter 12, verse 2, it says that God will make of Abraham a great nation. So, in understanding the development of God's revelation, we have to understand that this nation is God's special people. When I say special, I don't don't mean something good in them. I'm going to read a passage later that shows that there is nothing good in them that God saw, but but rather special in the sense that they're peculiar, set apart for God's purposes. And this is clear from the text in verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here, it, this promise is a specific promise to Abraham and his family, but it also spreads out to more than him. Just like the place, right, the land was actually just a picture of something bigger, which was this, this um, home that we're going to be able to have with God in heaven, so the people are the same. That is, that, or, or this, um, this, this nation is not just the nation of those who come from the descendancy of Abraham, but but actually all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. So it expands outward. It's it's a larger view than just Abraham's immediate family or even his extended family and ancestors. 
it, it extends to people like us. Uh, let's continue um, to think about God's people as we look at this primary characteristic, their faith. So turn to chapter 15. This is one of the things that God is working to do is to set His people apart so that they can live in His presence. And one of the things that He expects from us is, is faith. And this is the same thing that was true about Israel. Would someone read verses 2 and 3, chapter 15? All right, so Abraham's had this promise in chapter 12, and it's been a number of years now, and he still doesn't have a child. And now he's 75 years old, and so he says, well, since it's not going to be through me and Sarah, this is not going to happen at this point, we're way too old, then it has to be one of my heirs. You know, the, the inheritance to, uh, to the estate of, of a master was the, if it wasn't a child, and you know, if Abraham and Sarah died without a child, then it would go to the to Eleazar, the head of the household, um, kind of the the master of their household, the under servant. And um, so Sarah's barren. Abraham's too old now, in his view, and so he's beginning to doubt if he'll ever have a son. But notice verse five, and he took God, took him outside, and said, "Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them." And he said to him so shall your descendants be. Notice he doesn't say, so shall the descendants of Eleazar be. So, so, so shall your, Abraham, your descendants be. And now it says in verse 6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is counted, he's, he's um, determined by God or seen as righteous because of his faith. And this is good news for Abraham after... We've seen how sinful man can be with the flood that only their hearts are only evil all the time. And and so God brought the flood. And, and yet now we have Abraham who's willing to trust God. He's still a sinner like everyone else, but God for some reason chooses to count him righteous on the basis of his faith. And this is the doctrine that Paul will often stress in the New Testament, right? Romans 4, Galatians 3 it proves that no one can be righteous in their own doing. Right? No one can be righteous in the sight of God except by faith and faith alone. And this is important because just as it was true for Abraham that the only way that God, that, that Abraham can be spared from God's wrath is through faith, the same thing is true for us. The only way that we can be spared from God's wrath is through faith. And that is faith in the promised Redeemer, faith in Jesus Christ who satisfies God all of God's expectations, His demands for righteousness. And so Christ takes our place in that way. All right, any questions on that? The land and the people? All right, let's consider the covenant now. God's rule over His people, part of His rule and His faithfulness to His people is that He's going to provide a covenant. This is a solemn bond that He has between, that there is between two par- parties that has terms and conditions and can only be broken on penalty of death. 
Now, what you need to know is that in the ancient Near East, it was common for suzerain nations, the suzerain king of a nation, to, to set the terms of a covenant with a lesser vassal nation. And, and in order to do this, the, the, the smaller nation um, would get pr- protection. If he entered into this covenant, he would get protection and military aid and, and such. And the suzerain, in exchange, would get tribute and taxes and, and an oath of fidelity. And so the terms were usually laid out in a covenant and then they, this covenant would have a significant ceremony that would symbolize the, the, um, the seriousness of this covenant. And what these two people would do when they entered into the king of the suzerain nation and the king of the vassal nation, they would walk through the middle of dead animals to say that let what happens to me or let what, what has happened to these animals happen to me if I don't follow through on my end of the covenant. And so this is a very serious covenant that they were entering into. In other words, if the vassal nation decided, you know what, we decided we don't want to be a part of Assyria or Egypt anymore. We're getting out from underneath them. Well, then Egypt, because of the covenant, had the right to actually destroy them. And that's often what would happen. And um, so with the covenant, you had oaths and promises made. You had a ceremony. You had witnesses, documents, symbols. And um, that's very similar to the covenant of marriage. Not that, um, not that it's, um, the penalty is death if you, if you get out of it. But, but there are a lot of similarities there. Um, notice what God does in, in, um, in chapter 12. We'll go back there to chapter 12. In verse 8, God had just finished saying, look at the stars and see all the stars in the sky and notice what I'm going to do for you. Uh, actually, I don't think it's chapter 12. I think I'm in the wrong passage there. I think we were right there in chapter 15. Sorry about that. Chapter 15. And he said... This is Abraham speaking now. Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So I know you've confirmed this, God, and that I'm going to have all these descendants in this land and this, this uh, blessing, but, but how can I know for sure? And notice verse 9. So he said to them, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, in verse 13 you'll see there that that God says no for certain. So that uh, what God is about to do uh, with these cut up animals is for the purpose of assuring Abraham, right? What was Abraham's question in verse 8? How can I know? God's response in verse 13 is no for for certain, no for sure that this is going to happen. Here's how you can know. Look at verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants I have given this land. I mean this is a shocking scene isn't it? Smoke and fire throughout the Bible are symbols of what? God's presence right? Think about the pillar of fire the pillar of cloud 
in the, in the Old Testament. It's a symbol of God's presence, that God is spirit. He has no physical form, so He can't show up there in, in human form unless He came in the, angel, in the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Um, but, but here He comes in the presence of smoke and fire, or the symbol of smoke and fire, to demonstrate His real presence. And He passes through the dead carcasses. What did I say earlier that that meant when, when a person would, would pass through the dead carcasses, walk through? What is he saying? Whatever has happened to these animals happened to me if this covenant does not get fulfilled. So what is God saying about himself? Let me die if this covenant doesn't get fulfilled. Now, can God die? So how sure can Abraham be about this promise? You see? God's saying this is... And do you know what Abraham's doing during this time? He's sleeping. Notice verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. So, who's not walking through the dead animal? Abram's not. So, what does this tell us? That this covenant is not based on the goodness or the righteousness or the ability to fulfill the law. Now, there are, are other covenants that we have with God that are bilateral, but this one is not. This is unilateral. This is God saying, I will make it happen. Don't fear, Abraham. Look at the stars in the heaven. That's going to be your, your descendants. And so do you think that helped Abraham? Do you think that helped give Abraham confidence that the God who created all things, who was, who is uncreated, who does not have the ability to die, is saying, I will fulfill this promise by guarantee of death or execution. Well, we'll talk more about the covenant as we study through the Old Testament. Um, but as we continue, we want to see some of Abraham's descendants and how this promise does never, never gets never falls away. It, it stay, God stays faithful. He continues to remind His people about this promise. Any questions? All right. As you move on, it's important to keep in mind the promise of Genesis 3.15. There we saw that, that there's going to be a seed of Eve that's going to crush the head of um, the serpent. And... and and the serpent will crush his heel. So as Abraham finally gets this son at the age of 100, um, the question is, is this the promised seed? You know, maybe this is the promised seed. Is Isaac the one? And we know that Isaac, much like his father, was, was um, faulty. He, he had failures. I mean, he, he kind of followed in his father's footsteps with, with handing his, his wife off as if she were... Uh, his sister, so that she could be given to some other men. And, and um, so he was far from perfect. And then you have Esau and Jacob. I mean, is Esau going to be the promised son? Is he going to be the promised Savior, the one to, to come along and, and uh, eliminate the curse that's on the world? And we, of course, know it's not going to be him. Instead, it's his younger brother. At least the, the promise goes through his younger brother, Jacob. He's the heir of the covenant. And in this, we have to ask why. I mean, how is it that God can choose the younger, undeserving, conniving Jacob and, and, um, over his older brother? 
And this leads to a, a controversial doctrine, but I think one that is taught in the Scriptures, and that is the doctrine of election. So would you turn to chapter 25? This doctrine is that some will be given grace, that some are chosen by God purely on the basis of His grace, not on the basis of anything that they have done. And, and we don't believe or disbelieve this doctrine on the basis of you know, whether it's controversial. We don't believe any doctrines based on whether they create controversy or not. We believe doctrines whether they're based on whether they're taught in the Bible. And I think this one is important for us to understand. So let someone read verses 22 and 23. All right, so it sounds as though God is favoring one of the twins or maybe God's just making a prediction. You know, he kind of looks down the corridors of time and he sees that Jacob's going to be the better of the two. But not quite. God is actually saying that the younger son will receive the promises that, that Jacob will have the plan of redemption move forward through him, that he will be the son of favor. But why would God do this? Why would God choose one over the other? Was it that Jacob was more righteous than Esau? No. I mean, read the following chapters. Jacob's a little weasel, isn't he? You think, if you think Jacob was chosen because he was more righteous or more faithful, then the rest of Jacob's story is going to be um, confusing and frustrating. In fact, turn to Romans 9 because we see exactly why God did choose Jacob over, or at least a more general understanding of why God chose Jacob over Esau. Romans chapter 9. And verse 10 reads, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purposes of God according to His grace would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And the idea of love there is I have chosen, Esau I have not chosen. But notice that, that um, language at the end of verse 11. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And, and did you notice when God chose them? Did you notice when God chose Jacob over Esau? What does it say there in the text? Right. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so God chose them before they did anything. So it wasn't on the basis of righteousness that He chooses anyone. So then what is the purpose? And the middle of verse 11 says, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand. God has some kind of purpose in choosing Jacob, even though he's not any better than Esau, to be the fulfillment of His promise. Or at least to carry on the fulfillment. It was not by works, but it was according to Him who calls. Well, then why does God do this? Why does, why does God not base entrance into His future kingdom upon a person's work? works? I mean, why can't anyone earn their way in? And the first answer we have to admit is that no one can attain that, right? That none of us can reach perfect holiness 
Um, we are born sinners, and we even after we come to Christ, we still sin. Listen to Paul's reason for why God chooses one over the other. He said, "Is by grace you have been saved through faith." Ephesians two, eight and nine, and and this is not from yourself; it is the gift of God, not by works, so that what? So that no one can boast. So what's God doing here? Okay, we, we have all these crutches and you know this foundation of my works, what I have done, why God should choose me, and God just cuts, us, cuts all those things out so that none of us can boast in our salvation. So when we stand before God, we don't say, God, look at what I have done. Instead, we say, what amazing grace. I mean, how sweet is that sound that you would save a wretch like me? I did not deserve. I was a worm, right, um, at the cross, right, that, that you would save such a worm as I. No one will ever come into God's future kingdom, stand before Him, and boast that they had made it on their own effort as though God owed them something. He is our Lord. He is the benefactor. We are beneficiaries. We have no rights over God. And so... What we can say about election is that it teaches us that salvation is all of grace. We are rebels. Anything that we get that's good from God, anything good that comes from us is all 100% grace. And this is grace to God's glory. It actually fulfills His purposes. All right, let me show you this back in uh, the Old Testament with regard to God's choice of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because Old Testament Israel might have had the same question. They don't have to wait till, you know, uh, the afterlife to find out why God chose them. God actually gives them a reason here in, um, in the words of Moses right before Moses died. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, would someone read verses 7 through 9? So, it's not because you're more in number. Nothing special about you as a nation. You were, in fact, one of the smallest nations. And so, I, I didn't choose you for that reason. I chose that because I just decided I would set my love on you. And that's the nature of each one of us um, in God's choice that He decides to choose some over the other. And th- that leads to all sorts of other questions which we're not going to get into today. To today. But, but what we have to admit is that the Scriptures are clear that... that um, that God does make the choice. I think it's clear in the story of Jacob. I think it's confirmed in Romans 9. And I think it's clear in the, ch- the choice of Israel as well. Well, the rest of Genesis is concerned with one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. And Joseph's story is an interesting one. And if we don't know the rest of the story, we might think he's the one, that he's the promised um, redeemer, the promised savior. 
Um, and, and in a sense, Joseph will be a savior of Israel, but a small s kind of savior, um, in that he saves many people from death through providing for them uh, despite this famine. But he's not the ultimate savior. And in fact, he's not even the one through whom the savior is going to be born. It's actually going to be through his brother Judah. So let's uh, briefly look at this. I need to wrap it up here so we can get to the video. Um, chapter 37. Chapter 37, Joseph has a dream and it prophesies that, that Joseph will be a, a small s kind of savior and his brothers react with great anger. Um, um, they, verse 11 says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind and then skip down to verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death and they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. And then verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is, is, is it for us to kill our brother and cover his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So his own brothers were on the brink of killing him, but Judah said, You know what? Why don't we sell him into slavery? We can get some money then. We'll lie to our dad and, and um, everything will be fine. And... Uh, when Joseph got to Egypt, he was a slave, of course, and he worked his way up in Potiphar's house, but then he was um, falsely charged um, and, and put into prison. And in prison, he worked his way up in there to the highest place in the prison. And when a famine hit, it was Joseph who was the one who was able to interpret dreams on behalf of God's power. And, and um, God, God brought Joseph out and used him to save the Egyptians and many other nations through Joseph's wisdom and through Joseph's dependence on God. And in the end, Joseph gives all the credit to God. Turn to chapter 45. The, what we want to focus on is, is um, God's sovereignty here in, in using Joseph. Chapter 45, notice verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, please come closer to me. And then he came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For, notice, God sent me before you in order to preserve life. Isn't it interesting that he, he attributes their evil to, as a subsidiary, a, as, as a work, working out of God's plan. You sent me here, that was evil. But it, it was actually God who sent me here. Right? It was God who sent me before you. Why? In order to preserve life. So in the same breath that he said, you sold me into slavery, he says, God, sold, God sent me here in advance of this famine so that I could help save many nations. And a similar thing is said in chapter 50. Would you turn there? Chapter 50, verse 19, that Joseph's father's dead and so now his brothers think, think that this is it. You know, now he's really going to come after us. Uh, he was holding back because he didn't want to disappoint his father, but now, or their father. But now that dad's dead, then he's going to kill us. And so in verse 18, they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for I, am I in God's place? In other words, to take your life because of your sin. Verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
So what we learn here about the sovereignty of God is that God uses the circumstances of man, men and even the evil acts of men to accomplish exactly what He wants. God's not responding in heaven. He's not reacting. He knows what's going to happen because He's plan, planned <coughs> it all. He is sovereignly in control of it and He even uh, chooses to use the evil acts of men in order to accomplish His purposes. How does this all work? I don't know. It's often a mystery that we can't understand. But I, I think it's hard to resist this truth that God is both sovereign and man is responsible, especially when you look at the worst act of human history, which is the death of Jesus Christ who never deserved to die. The one who was completely perfect was killed for the sake of us. And God had planned that from before the foundation of the world, and yet it was carried out not by, because God... Um, God compelled evil in someone or he created evil but somehow he uses the acts of evil men in order to accomplish exactly what he wants and in fact they're not resisting God uh, they're actually doing what they want to do uh, it's not like I mean they are resisting God but what, I, what I'm saying is they're not being forced by God um, they're doing exactly what they want to do and at the same time God's accomplishing what he wants to do and we know this from Romans 8.28 a familiar passage we know that all things work for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose it doesn't say all good things it's actually all things for those who love God God accomplishes all those things well the promised savior has not come yet Joseph is not the promised savior and he's not the father of the promised savior again Judah is that that one and so we have to wait see who is it that's going to crush the head of the serpent and um We'll have to keep studying through the Old Testament to see if we can determine who that is. Of course, we know uh, who it is, but we'll see him more clearly as we go through. All right, uh, let me just uh, take the rest of our time to to um, let you watch a video on Genesis 12 through 50. And this is a video that I've found helpful. All these videos by the Bible Project are good. Um, again, with anything that I recommend, just take it with a grain of salt because um, nothing's inspired outside of the Bible. So I would recommend these to you. Sorry about this. Trying to get this to work. Thank you, Jonathan. Oh, I lost it.
Father, thank you for the message of the Bible that reminds us that you are the sovereign God over all. Thank you for the reminder uh, about our salvation today, that that while we have to express faith, um, that's simply a condition. It's not the means. It's not. It's not the. Um, it's not the the way that that we earn for us anything. In fact, we can't earn anything but your wrath. 
and uh, so we're thankful for your grace. Would you continue to pour that out on us, even despite our sin, and use um, even um, our failures to remind us of how much we need to fall on you for grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.